0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben.
1: And I'm Sarah.
0: Thank you so much for listening to us today. How you doing today, Sarah?
1: Feeling stressed out.
0: What's got you stressed out?
1: Moving.
0: That's fair. I think we're like on track though, right?
1: Well, I might have talked about this on the show before, but at every moment of the day, my brain is like, you should be packing. Mm. And so the fact that we haven't packed yet, despite us not actually moving for 12 days, Mm -hmm. I am like, yeah, but that's 12 days away we should be packing right now oh for sure you're getting ready for bed no you should be packing <laughs> on the bright side i um have pretty much recovered from strep throat uh thank you everyone for your patience with these episodes and the timing of things uh, mm. we will probably still need a little bit to get fully back on track with our regular cadence but like man We have the best listeners in the world, I gotta say it. Creatures of the Night, you are amazing and fantastic, and yeah, your patience has been such a boon.
0: So yeah, this is um, both like kind of a regular episode, but also not a regular episode. Mm -hmm. It's a request, and it comes to us from listener David Healy, um, who wanted us to cover 1926's Faust, directed by F.W. Murnau. Faust is a film that I made a choice not to cover back in the 1920s it's not like I didn't know this film existed (laughs) um
1: yeah because you well you're a big um silent movie buff you're a big Murnau fan yeah you're a big like early German cinema fan Mm -hmm. yeah
0: I also wrote a paper on Faust in university um which Sarah thinks we should put up as bonus content on the Patreon.
1: Yeah, so keep your eyes peeled for that at the $10
0: level yeah. to
1: read Ben's university paper
0: which compares Faust to Don Draper. God, we're old. We Mad Men are. was still
1: on the air back then.
0: Yeah. Yeah, really <laughs> w- it very much was. Uh- um so yeah, the reason we didn't cover Faust back in the day is because Faust is a German expressionist silent film, and I am of the firm belief that that does not equal horror in any and all cases, which tends to be like a common... It's a common denominator
1: for horror films of this vintage but it's not
0: they're not equivalent yeah um not all german expressionist silent films are horror movies and yet it's something that you see stated like all the time like people will be talking to you about waxworks and they'll be like waxworks is a horror movie and i'll be like "Mm, it's an anthology picture with a romantic dramatic and comedic segment with like a brief horror segment at the end that's still kind of more like Looney Tunesy than anything else. Like expressionism and horror are not equivalent. So I was very much under the firm opinion that Faust is not a horror film. It has fantastical elements and like a devil in it, but it's not horror. That being said, I've wanted to watch Faust with Sarah for a long time it's sort of been on a to watch list for us for a very long time and we just don't get around to it there's just always something else there's so much folks and so when david healy sent an email in requesting that we take a look at faust i thought to myself well fuck it like i can get (laughs) sarah to watch the movie this way don't you mean faust it (laughs) and you know while it's not like officially our horror adjacent bonus episode for the month it's technically going to be like a regular episode however it'll be one of our like retcon episodes this is going to be like episode 16c i think
1: yes because we already have a 16b which is Karuta itchopeji so this is 16c going back in time
0: yes and it Um, may be
1: put onto our miscellaneous list or it may be
0: ranked right exactly like if it if it turns out that you agree with me that this isn't horror um we'll just yeah put it on the miscellaneous list as we do many films but at least we won't have to answer the question anymore because we'll have like a definitive episode where it's like no we we watched it and we made up our minds and we made a choice as to whether it's horror or not so yeah we're going back in time uh so we have to cast our minds all the way back to the 1920s Weimar Germany the world of Fritz Lang, and Paul Wigner, and Henrik Galeen, and Robert Wiener, and Richard Oswald and F.W. Murnau.
1: Yeah, uh, growing unrest in Germany's society, a uh, rise of Nazi power. Um, that's coming more in like the 30s, but right now we are feeling good in Germany. Mm,
0: sort of. <laughs> I mean, if you count like rampant inflation and social problems but like you (laughs) know we're in they don't know what's coming this is
1: like the world in like 2019 or whatever we didn't know what was coming sure
0: (laughs) but but like you know this is yeah this is weimar germany this is the height of like the berlin art scene in the 1920s but on the other hand like all of those social problems existed in the 1920s, like yeah. the inflation, the poverty, the anti-Jewish sentiment. Yes. Like the, you know, 1926. I think Hitler's in jail right now. I think we're past the the beer push. But anyways, the point is, is that the last time we looked at an F.W. Murnau movie was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nosferatu was covered in episode 10. And it's currently sitting at number 36 on the list out of 239 entries.
1: Strong showing.
0: Yeah. So so it's been a while. I'm going to give like a bit of a refresh on F.W. Murnau. But in the interest of chronological fidelity, I thought perhaps we could go back in time even further mm. uh, to talk about Faust because this film is based on a variety of Sources, which in reverse chronological order are Charles Gounod's Faust opera from 1853, Goethe's Faust Part One from 1808, Christopher Marlowe's Doctor Faustus play from 1592. Come on, ninety-two. Oh yeah, good job. And the Faust book, Die History de Johann Faustus from 1539? No. Damn. Okay, I got no points. nearly all the way there. No points. Um, but that last one, the Faust book, is itself, of course, based on folklore about Faust, which is itself basically um, slander— about the real guy faust
1: uh well is it is it slander if everyone believes it
0: yes it's still slander because i think it's slander if it's not true (laughs) so a lot to cover
1: yes faust the man the myth the legend yeah He was a real guy. Uh, He was born around the 15th century. Um, There's kind of two main guesses. One is the year 1466 and the other is 1480. And that is because he also has two recorded names, one Jorg and one Johan. These could have been the same guy. They could have been two separate guys, but they were both magicians active in the 1500s we also know that faust was born in germany but no definitive answer of where we do know that he uh was learned he um got both a bachelor's and master degree equivalents uh at universities he was a scholar a physician astrologer a magician (laughs) kind of a jack of all trades
0: yeah um one of the reasons we know for sure that like he existed is because of like university like academic records and things like that
1: Yes. Um, So between travel records and academic records, we are able to trace Faust to studying at the Heidelberg University in uh, the 1480s, traveling to different cities, for example, Ingolstadt, which um, Frankenstein fans will recognize (laughs) because he's listed as a doctor active there in like 1528-ish. And there's also a record of him being in a city called Gelnhausen, in 1506-1507 as a magician performer. Now the particular record of him being in Gelnhauser as well as a town named Wesberg is um, between some letters of like notable astrologers being like there's this guy in town whose name is Faust and he calls himself an astrologer, a magician, a necromancer and claims he studied in Sikingen, but I don't believe it. And I think he's a fraud. Eventually, this Faust uh, gets kicked out, both for like people being like, I don't believe this guy. But also, apparently he was teaching and uh, reportedly was uh, committing sodomy with his students.
0: Yes. So when I wrote my university paper, a lot of what my research kind of suggested was when this guy went to university, things like... I think it was, like, math, astrology, astronomy, and, like, medicine were magic. Yes. And then, like, there were things like necromancy and alchemy and, like, other practices that were black magic and were bad. And you Alchemy, of course, being chemistry. <laughs> yes, uh, which you, like, weren't supposed to learn. And so one of the towns that we think he was born in, I tend to favor because we know... That there's this record of this guy, Jorg, I think it's Helmstadter, enrolling at Heidelberg University. And then this confusion over his first name, it seems like he chose Faustus as a pseudonym at university, which was like super common at the time. People like choosing a Latin name like Paracelsus. And I think Faustus in Latin means like lucky. And then the German Like, if you take Faustus and you say it in, like, a German way as just Faust, then it just means fist, which I think (laughs) is really funny. The research I did kind of suggested that this guy was going around and, like, you know, essentially doing his astrology black magic TED Talks and, yeah, having sex with his younger students and that maybe that homosexuality and that, like, pederasty
1: pederasty Um, you can't just throw around a word like that and expect everyone here to understand what that is like
0: like greek style older teacher younger student inappropriate relations Uh, okay um this is kind of at the heart of why people didn't like him and all of the like later slander about like he made a deal with the devil and practices black magic and has evil powers is kind of like embellishment on that like one central thing Mm. that might be true that people didn't like you talk about the letters my favorite one is that we actually have a letter from Martin Luther talking about not liking Faust which is hilarious
1: yes so yes he's a gay wizard traveling across Europe (laughs) yes um reportedly being boastful of his talents his uh, medical knowledge often being praised but he would also be refused entry into places because of this reputation that would precede him of being gay but also these rumors about um, making deals with devils following him around uh, for example he would travel with he had a pet poodle and people would be like that poodle turns into a servant because that poodle's the devil so and that that's his servant and when he travels it's a poodle also his horse pretty sure his horse is also a
0: transformed human so he's a gay warlock with a poodle familiar yeah got it
1: so when he died we know that it was around 1540 and that it was a pretty ghastly scene because he you know faust he's at home he's he's doing his gay wizardry and part of that is alchemy as we talked about which is chemistry and an experiment goes wrong and there's a huge explosion reportedly when people would go see what the heck happened down the street um faust was blown to bits with like eyes brains like everything everywhere um completely torn to shreds and so then people started saying like well i guess the devil came to collect Mm -hmm. because what an unnatural way to go
0: Mm -hmm. i think the context that like people in these in this era believed that the way you got magic powers was from deals with the devil is like an important thing to
1: yeah because you see if you got magic powers from god you were in the church
0: right you were a priest exactly you're either a cleric or a warlock and <laughs> one of these things is okay and the other isn't
1: so pretty um uh the only word coming to mind is iconic
0: <laughs> i was thinking grisly, but okay
1: pretty grisly and iconic way to go But stories kind of proliferated after his death um, around these rumors and they would become they would spread. And because this is all done orally as well, um, sometimes his name would get added into folktales as people would be talking like, oh, don't go into the woods at night. One of the demons that Faustus made a deal with lives in there. Right. Uh, When originally it was just like, don't go in there. There's a demon. Mm hmm. A lot of these folktales were collected in the book you mentioned, 1587's Historia von die Johann Fausten. Now, uh, we don't know the author, but it was published by a guy named Johann Spies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think in German that becomes just like Spies, but you're right it's 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 spelled s-p-i-e-s
1: uh, and i just like the idea of it being spies because it's like a book of slander mm. um but yeah so he was the owner of a publishing house now this is a book of I, I feel like slander is a bit harsh because it's not being like oh i'm gonna take down faust right he's
0: been dead Dean's for dead. a while
1: um it's a book of rumors it's cataloging these oral folktales that happen to now be starring faust himself um these would be anecdotes that you know maybe would be like a couple paragraphs long and added into this book as a means of just collecting these things this book so solidified much of faustus mythos um particularly his pact with a devil named mephistopheles so this isn't satan this is satan's representative mephistopheles right And it was also a book that was used to, like, scandalize around, like, black magic and be Mm -hmm. like, see, you need to be a good Christian boy, Ben, because Mm -hmm. you don't want to be like Faust. Look at all these terrible things he got up to.
0: Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a sensationalized, mostly not true biography of a guy for the purpose of educational (laughs) (laughs) reasons.
1: It was hugely popular, as were many of Spies' published works. His publishing house published a lot of what were called chapbooks. They were also called Volksbuch. <laughs> That's not how you would pronounce that. But like folk book yeah. is basically the rough translation there that are basically like prose versions of fairy tales.
0: Not high literature.
1: Not high literature, and no delineation between fictional and non fictional material.
0: Chat books are sort of like the medieval equivalent of like Victorian dime novels, basically.
1: That's definitely the vibe I got. Now, this Faust chap book was translated into English in 1591. So like four years later, like that's really fast for a book to be selling and being translated everywhere mm-hmm. um, in this time period. With that timing of the English translation, it makes this book not only the very first Faust book, Book, but also the main source for the next major Faust work, which is Christopher Marlowe's play titled The Tragical History of the Life and Death of Dr. Faustus. Um, now, this was, uh, it's weird to call it published. It was finished as a play in 1592 93. Let me tell you about Christopher Kitt Marlowe.
0: Yes. And Please.
1: another tangent, I did a full university course on Elizabethan literature, mm. mainly studied this guy named Philip Sidney uh, in particular, but Christopher Marlowe popped up. Um, Shakespeare was mentioned, but, you know, it wasn't just Shakespeare that we looked at. Right. Uh, so Christopher Kitt Marlowe was born in 1564 and he died mysteriously, but not so mysteriously in 1593. He is, um, (laughs) I think it was late when I wrote these notes because I wrote down, he's a big kahuna Elizabethan era poet. Mm. Um, he's a big deal. Um, he is a playwright and poet. And as I said, he mysteriously died. And after he passed, Shakespeare took up the limelight as the Elizabethan playwright.
0: Are you suggesting that Shakespeare murdered Christopher Marlowe, Sarah?
1: I'm not, not saying that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so a lot of Marlowe's work can kind of be can kind of be described as having these two main themes that are also uh have a little bit of a tension between them. One is uh his work tends to be humanistic. By that I mean um look at people's agency and uh the really value of reason and like the value of making your own decisions. But Marlowe knows how to appeal to the masses, and therefore also tends to have an anti-intellectual streak in his work. Being smart is dumb, <laughs> which is often at uh, odds with this, like, reason is good. Right. But book smarts be bad. <laughs> right. Now he's mainly known for writing tragedies, um, and some of the major works of his uh, would be like 1587's *Tamburlaine*, which is also notable because it's the first case of blank verse being used in early modern English literature, which is just metric but no rhyme. Yeah. Um, listen, I, I want to show off my English degree a Please little bit do. here. Please do. Okay. Um, around 1590, he did uh, *The Jew of Malta*, and then *Doctor Faust* um, in 1592-93. Now, Marlowe's Faust really encapsulates this, like, search for knowledge of, like, you know, I've learned all I can, I want to learn more, notably in the play. As Faust is like, oh, I really want to learn more, a good angel and bad angel pop up on his shoulders to be like, here's what you, you should do if you want to learn more, um, and the bad angel wins out in this uh debate um and encourages faust to summon the devil mephistopheles to be like hey give me some knowledge
0: so were the options like work hard or get yourself a like infernal sugar daddy and he went with the second one
1: yes the good angel was like hey be content with where you are
0: ah i want more in life don't yeah Mm.
1: and then the bad angel was like no learn more yes through bad ways. Uh-uh. Now, to his credit, Mephistopheles does go like, hey, bud, you sure? You sure you want to make a deal with me? And Faust is like, yep, bud, definitely want to do it. So they sign a deal where Faust will get 24 years of unlimited power. And then after that, he has to come back to help with Mephistopheles and be his servant. In those 24 years, over the course of the play, Faust achieves nothing. And at the end, he gets dragged to hell. So when it was performed, like I said, it was after Marlowe's death, but it was very popular. And so the play itself would travel across the continent and back to Germany in the 1600s. Now I've kind of put like, ooh, Marlowe died mysteriously. Um there's rumors that he was murdered, um that he uh was poisoned in some way, that he was stabbed and that was missed. Um truth be told, my theory is he drank too much as many people did back then and died in the gutter.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Edgar Allan Poe style. <laughs> there's also a stream of thought that believes that Marlowe was Shakespeare. Yes. Uh to which I say, "Bah! <laughs> get out of here.
0: Bah, humbug."
1: So, that's going off in England. Back in Germany, Spies's Chap book is being revisited by scholars in the 1600s, 17th century. First by G.R. Widmann, um, who added more stories to the publication in 1587. Then a Dr. Johann Nicholas Fitzer... In 1695, did his own kind of revisiting of the chapbook and added a narrative of Faust falling in love with a maid after having made his deal with Mephistopheles. And Faust is like, "Oh, I want to marry this girl," and Mephistopheles is like, mm, "You can't marry, cause your soul is mine. You can't give it to another person. It's mine."
0: Because it doesn't matter what the story is about. Sooner or later, someone will think, this really needs a romance subplot.
1: (laughs) Yes, I'm sure there is many, many a fan fiction written about Faust and Mephistopheles together. (laughs) So this story from Fitzer about Faust wanting to marry is kind of continued and expanded further in the next major Faust text, which is by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Goethe's a big deal. He's a big deal. Despite his Faust play being considered Goethe's magnum opus, he is well known for much, much more. Uh, He is hugely influential on German philosophy, literature, uh, the romantic movement in Germany at this time. He's a novelist, a playwright, a scientist, a critic. So if any patrons of the night are listening, um, I did a recent gothic retrospective on music. And um, there's a phrase I use in there called Sturm und Drang," which is like a way that is to describe tension between like, the music, but it's also used in literature, and that comes from Goethe. He was big in natural science, um, particularly with 1788's *Metamorphosis of Plants*. But for now, we are just going to be looking at Faust. Okay. Goethe. He wrote the first part of Faust in a couple different ways. First, he uh, you know he he really liked. Fitzer's, like version of Faust in like the most recent version of that chapbook. And he also really liked Marlowe's play. So Goethe is like, eh, I'm not really sure how I want to put my own spin on it. So he first did a fragment called Urfaust er in 1790. And people were like, this is dope. And it was kind of like just a, a fragment of what ultimately became part one.
0: I should say that like Urfaust er is an academic name given to that text it's not like what the text would have been called at the time it's just a way of indicating that it's like a prototypical version
1: yeah um then he publishes part one in it's full it's kind of weird to say that because it's part one uh in 1808 Goethe was 59 he would revise part one throughout his life um but would release this revised version in 1828-29 and then He was pretty happy with Faust at that time. So he then released part two in 1832 before his death the following year.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, but like Goethe's Faust is essentially written as like a stage play. So it's
1: um, it's written as a play, but it's called a closet play in the sense that it is meant to be read Rather than performed. Yeah. Like, but people definitely have performed it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like, so to contrast that with like Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, like, you know, the, the order of operations there is like Marlowe writes a script for a play. That play is performed. That performance is super popular. That script gets published because people want it because it's popular. Whereas with like Goethe, there wasn't like an initial performance that he was writing with the intention of creating it was like he wrote a book that is in the form of a play and people were like that's dope and later did it as a performance yes yeah
1: so the way that uh part one and part two are kind of differentiated is um part one focuses pretty exclusively on faust and his story while part two almost looks at the social world around faust Hmm. um but for the purpose of this podcast we will be focusing on part one which features uh as it opens mephistopheles and god betting to lure faust down a path of evil basically um
0: so some job shit
1: yeah god being like faust is my favorite person and mephistopheles being like betcha i can make him sin yeah. God being like, nah, dog.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is, yeah, the setup for the book of Job.
1: Yeah. Cut to Faust being Faust. Uh, he's on that continuous search for knowledge and magic, and he wants more. He keeps running into roadblocks to get more. And it's making him incredibly frustrated to the point where he's considering suicide. He's like, I, I'm the best I can ever be with my knowledge, and that's not enough. And if I can't be more, then there's no point in living anymore. Um, Just to note, that particular part takes place over Easter weekend, which I only point out because uh, an early werewolf myth is around like, hey, if you're not going to participate in Easter, you're going to be tempted by the devil. Huh. Which is what happens to Faust here. He's followed by a uh, poodle that follows him home and then uh, turns out to be Mephistopheles. he offers him a contract that I will give you like the most transcendental experience via knowledge. So you will just like feel so happy to be alive and not suicidal anymore. But means I get your soul. Faust is like, yeah, I am at a dead end. Please, let's do this. After signing this contract, Faust later meets a girl named Gretchen. Um, She's also sometimes called Margaret because I guess Gretchen is like a nickname for Margaret.
0: Yeah, it depends on if you're looking at like some like like German stuff versus like French stuff. That's like adapted the German stuff. A lot of times it seems like it's Gretchen in Germany and Margaret in France.
1: Um, And they're in love. And so they want Mm -hmm. some private time. (laughs) So. Gretchen takes a sleeping potion from Faust to give to her mom. so They can go off and have some private time. But Gretchen gives her mom too much and her mom dies. Then turns out Gretchen's pregnant. <laughs> so her brother goes to face off with Faust to be like, what the fuck did you do? And in that confrontation, Gretchen's brother is killed. Gretchen gives birth to baby, but is very ashamed Her mom's dead from her own hands. Her brother is dead from her lover's hands. Uh, And now she has had this baby out of wedlock. So she drowns the baby. She's then convicted of murder and sent to jail. Faust, meanwhile, plans with Mephistopheles a way to break Gretchen out of jail. And when they get to her, she refuses because she's like, no, I, I did bad things. I fully admit that I've sinned. I I should not leave. That would be con- committing more sin. And so Faust and Mephistopheles leave her behind. And it is implied uh, that Gretchen basically her soul is saved with this decision. And that's the end of part one. So it's all uh, it's very interesting to me, like how much that play focuses on Gretchen rather than Faust. And Faust is there and he's trying to like fix things, but he ends up like killing her brother mm-hmm. um she he tries to save gretchen and she won't accept it after all that the power that faust traded his soul for is useless so as i said it's a closet play but it was performed on stage as early as 1819 as well as many years later across the continent and beyond it was however adapted into an opera in 1859 by charles Gnod, um, in france because Germany and France have a very interrelated uh, culture. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I want to bring up about that kind of plot line that I just read about Goethe's Faust is uh, it has a lot of student of Prague vibes.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the thing about Faust is that any stories after Faust that are about people making like infernal deals are Faustian, right? Um, when I did the paper on Faust, one of the things I found was that like part two of Goethe's Faust is way more like concerned with like philosophical things than like plot. Um, which there's something, this is, Goethe is not the only artist for whom it's like they create a really popular work earlier in their career and then they return to it maybe later in their career with a sequel or a continuation. But instead of caring about like plot and character, now they just want to use it as like a stealth way to talk about like their philosophical views. Yeah. The other thing about the two parts is there's this like shift in sympathy with Faust where like because Goethe was part of the romantic movement, which was all about like a rejection of the enlightenment part one is like faust you suck because you want to be like a scientist who knows things and that's that's for the birds but then part two instead sides with faust because Goethe has decided like right right right, right but faust knew all of the science knowledge and that wasn't enough for him. He needed transcendental knowledge that went beyond what was possible to learn with reason. And that's why he made the deal. And so actually Faust is cool. And so like part two is more about like that Faust is good because although he did these things for selfish reasons, it was because he was like rebelling against the society around him.
1: Yeah. Part two comes out later and within a more established romantic movement. So that's a big part of why there's that shift.
0: And so the thing that I find really interesting about that is the way that like Western culture has this like thing where they'll create antihero characters like Faust to be like, don't be like Faust. This is the wrong way to be. But eventually we all kind of decide that the antihero is cool (laughs) and we Mm want to be the antihero.
1: Well, as much as like cultural products will comment on societal norms at the end of the day, there's also an element of wanting to push against those. Otherwise Mm -hmm. it's a boring story.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you have this like push pull of like, we're trying to enforce society's values by showing you don't be like this guy who goes against society's values. But deep down, we're all like, right, but isn't going against society's values
1: cool, though? Yeah, that makes him a rebel. Right, exactly.
0: So that's, there, there's kind of this like push-pull within Faust of like how sympathetic is he. I think for me, the main thing about the opera of Faust is that, like, most of my knowledge of it comes from the fact that it's the opera being performed during Phantom of the Opera.
1: Yes. <laughs> uh, that's at the end,
0: right? Um, it's it's in the original Gaston LaRue version of Phantom of the Opera and the Lon Chaney version. It's just, like, the opera that is being performed during the storyline.
1: It's a very famous opera, and it's based off this very famous play, which is based off of this like very inherently German, now at this point folklore mm-hmm. um, figure of folklore uh, that has captured everyone's imaginations.
0: Yeah, and Goethe's version of Faust, like because Goethe is so important to German literature, like Goethe's Faust became like like one of these canonical pillars of German culture, basically. Well, all of the things that Goethe did. Mm -hmm. became that yeah
1: (laughs) so it's not really a surprise like people and scholars see this play as good as magnum opus
0: right exactly so it's like important to emphasize that like for germany and german culture like faust is a big deal yeah right but yeah the opera um i feel like the main thing is like if you hear music from it it'll be familiar even if you didn't know that that music was from faust um, Carl Davis's score for the Chaney the opera, like incorporates a lot of the music into it, which makes a ton of sense. Right. Nice. So yeah. Um, thank you for that primer on Faust. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, to give you that knowledge, I did have to steal your soul. <laughs> um, thank you for signing this contract. Yes. This marriage contract.
0: <laughs> so, um, with that said and done, let's talk about FW Murnau because yeah. we haven't talked about Murnau for like 240 episodes or whatever. F.W. Murnau was born Friedrich Wilhelm Plumpe on December 28th, 1888 in Germany. And from a young age, uh, he was was very precocious. Um, Friedrich would stage plays for the entertainment of his parents and their friends, which would star him and his siblings. And by age 12, he'd read Nietzsche, ibsen and shakespeare he chose the pseudonym Murnau from the name of the town he grew up in and as a young man he was said to have an icy disposition and an obsession with film he studied philology at the university of berlin and then art history and literature at heidelberg university which is also where faust studied Ooh. He flew combat missions in northern France during World War I and spent part of the war as a POW in Switzerland, where he was part of a prisoner theater group and wrote a film script. His time as a um, combat pilot would inspire a number of bird's eye view aerial sequences in this film. After World War I, Murnau began fulfilling his dream of directing movies with his first feature films, although of the ten films he made before Nosferatu, only three survive to this day. As discussed in episode 10, the aftermath of Nosferatu's release had been disastrous due to the lawsuit against the film, which saw all copies of the film destroyed except for Um, The 16 millimeter copy that existed in the U.S. as an import that basically no one in the the German court system knew existed. Um, And the expense of that lawsuit led to the closure of Prana Film, the film production company that had been set up to make Nosferatu. Murnau, however, emerged relatively unscathed from Nosferatu Crashing and Burning. Uh, The movie had gotten, like, a lot of critical and artistic attention in Germany during the brief time that it was viewable. And so because of that, Murnau was able to, like, parlay that into a continuing career. His next film, Phantom, was not horror, but still had, like, a surreal dreamlike quality. And this time he would work with major German studio Ufa instead of independently, or with producer Eric Palmer's Dekla production company, which he had worked with in the past. That being said, Dekla became part of UFA around this time. Uh so it's all related. Mm -hmm. Uh, but Murnau's future German films would be made at UFA, which bought Dekla in 1923. So UFA stands for Universum Film AG. And we talked about them a lot back in our early episodes about German silent films. But as a reminder, uh, Universum Film AG had been founded as a conglomerate of several existing private film companies in 1917 with starting capital that largely came from the German government for the purposes of using the film studio for wartime propaganda. After the war, however, uh, Deutsche Bank was the controlling interest in the studio. And they decided that it made more sense to run the studio for the purpose of making money instead of propaganda. Um, and so in 1921, Ufa was privatized and became the major producer of German film. They were like the big um not quite monopoly, but like close to monopoly in the German film industry. After they purchased Decla in 1923, all of the various artistic talents that Decla producer Eric Palmer had cultivated ensured that UFA's product would have critical acclaim on its side um, as well as the sort of economic dominance that the studio enjoyed. So who is Eric Palmer? What was Decla? Uh, Eric Palmer was a Jewish movie producer born in 1889, and he was put in charge of production at UFA following the buyout of Dekla, making him one of the most powerful people in the German film industry. He had started in the film industry in 1907, working for the German branch of Gamont. After the war, he began working for the German and Austrian branches of the French Eclair Film Company. In 1915, Palmer began to produce original German films for Eclair rather than just like managing the German releases of these French films. And so the German version of Eclair uh, producing these new films was called Deutsch Eclair or DECLA. And that company grew rapidly, um, attracting the talents of Robert Wiener, Fritz Lang, F.W. Murnau, all the big artistic names mm. of um, the German silent era. By 1920, Decla was the second biggest studio in Germany other than UFA. and then it was UFA. Yeah. Uh, Palmer fostered a huge collection of talents and the hyperinflation that Germany was suffering in the 1920s made immensely expensive productions feasible uh, for UFA. While at Ufa, Murnau directed seven motion pictures, one of the most critically lauded being Der Mann*, um, also known as The Last Laugh in English, which he produced in 1924. The story of a hotel doorman who loses his job, most acclaimed for Karl Freund's incredible unchained camera cinematography, as well as its lack of intertitles and its moving humanistic story. The film was a huge critical success, gaining Murnau the artistic freedom to produce projects on a grand scale. Ufa basically gave him an unlimited budget for his next film, which was Faust. Mm. So, Faust was, at the time, the most elaborate and expensive project that Ufa had ever undertaken.
1: That's until metropolis right?
0: Correct. <laughs> uh filming for Faust took 6 months and cost 2 million Reichmarks. Murnau used 2 cameras filming multiple shots at the same time with many takes of each. For instance, um a shot of uh Faust like signing the infernal contract took like a day to film. To recover the immense costs associated with making the film, it was considered essential that Faust needed to express the supremacy of German cinema and do justice to this titanic German cultural work, but also be broadly appealing on the international scene. To this end, John Barrymore was originally considered to star as Faust, uh, but that deal kind of fell through and instead the role went to justa Ekman, the biggest star of the swedish stage born in 1890 in stockholm franz justa victor Ekman uh, was known for his boyish good looks that made him attractive to both men and women Ooh. he had a beautiful voice and a charismatic stage presence that made him a legend in his own time He was a master of makeup and costume, and equally at home in any genre. He was known as a workaholic. Uh, He would rehearse and direct plays during the day, then perform the lead in plays in the evenings, and then shoot films at night, with his free time being occupied by serving as the administrative director of the four theaters that he ran. His stage career had begun in 1911, and he'd been appearing in Swedish films since 1912. While filming Faust for Murnau, he was introduced to cocaine as a method of coping with his demanding (laughs) work schedule. Yeah. The 1930s were considered the height of his career. Uh, He played the lead in the first Swedish sound film in 1930. Uh, He appeared in a large number of highly acclaimed stage plays. He co-starred with Ingrid Bergman in the original Swedish version of Intermezzo in 1936, before passing away in 1938 at 47 years old due to the fact that his body had completely deteriorated from his heavy cocaine use.
1: Also his work schedule... Like, I don't want to overstate the, like, cocaine impact, but also he was clearly, as you said, a workaholic.
0: Yeah, I mean, basically what killed him was that he worked 24 hours a day, a thing that he managed to do via cocaine use. Yeah,
1: but I mean, before the cocaine, he was working 20 hours a day, right? Sure,
0: yeah. Now, similarly, Murnau originally courted American star Lillian Gish for the role of Gretchen, uh, but she would only do it on the condition that her favorite cinematographer, Charles Rocher, shoot the picture. That was an unacceptable compromise for Murnau, who had the picture shot by his favorite cinematographer, Carl Hoffman who had shot films for Rickard Oswald, Paul Lenny, Fritz Lang, and Murnau, including such films as *Der Januskopf*, Dr. Mabusa, and *Die So instead of Lillian Gish, Murnau cast Camilla Horn, whose biggest credit to that point had been as the lead actress's leg double in Murnau's previous film.
1: <laughs> so the studio's like, we need to cast big, like, non-German people to get our money. And Murnau's like... No.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Born in 1903 in Frankfurt am Main, Faust was a huge breakthrough for Camilla Horn. Um in 1928, she left Germany for America where she co-starred with John Barrymore in two pictures. Like that's how big of a star this movie made her kind of overnight. Returning to Germany in the 1930s, she was prosecuted by the Nazis for not following monetary edicts, and in 1938, her lover was targeted by the Gestapo for being a spy. He fled to England, and she attempted to flee to Switzerland and failed, uh, ending up in Italy, where she made a number of Italian films. After the war, she worked as an interpreter for occupying U.S. forces before being imprisoned by the British for breaking travel edicts. All throughout this period until her retirement in 1953, she remained a consistently working and popular actress, and she passed away in 1996 at age 93. Wow. That all being said, the true star of this film is Emil Jannings as Mephisto. Born in Rorschach, Switzerland in 1884 as Theodor Friedrich Emil Jannings, Emil Jannings ran away from home and school at an early age to go to sea. Upon his return in 1910, he began acting in several theater companies throughout Germany before joining Max Reinhardt's theatrical company. From 1915 onwards, he was never out of work as an actor, making his breakthrough in 1918 with his performance in the play Der Zobrucker Krug. Signing a contract with Ufa, he went into films, though he actually disliked the silent medium. He felt it was, like, limiting as an actor. He appeared in many films, such as 1918's Diogen der Mumima and 1919's Madame du Barry, both opposite star actress Popola Negri. And in 1924, he won great acclaim, playing the lead role in Murnau's Der He's the doorman who gets fired. His great popularity enabled him to leave Germany for Hollywood in 1927. In 1929, he became the first recipient of the Academy Award for Best Actor. And in 1930, he appeared opposite Marlene Dietrich in The Blue Angel, which was filmed simultaneously in German as Die Blaue Engel. However, Jannings' German accent was difficult to understand in the early sound period, and he was also thoroughly upstaged by Dietrich in her star-making turn in that film. Returning to Germany, Jannings continued to act after the Nazis seized power and control of the film industry, appearing in numerous films that were very much meant as Nazi propaganda. He was even named Artist of the State, by Josef Goebbels. This close association with the Nazi regime made him persona non grata during the denazification process after the war, and he passed away in 1950 from liver cancer after five years of unemployment. Other notable names in the cast include William Dieterle, who starred in German silent films like Waxworks before fleeing for Hollywood in the 1930s and becoming a director of classic films like A Midsummer Night's Dream in 1935, The Story of Louis Pasteur in 1936, Satan Met a Lady in 1936, The Life of Emile Zola in 1937, which won Best Picture, The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1939... Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet in 1940, and The Devil and Daniel Webster in 1941. Also featured in the cast is Yvette Gilbert, who was born in 1865 and had been an extremely famous French cabaret singer of La Belle Epoque from 1871 to 1914. She was the innovator of the French chanson uh, genre of songs. And, um was just kind of a big deal but by like the 1920s was like mostly semi-retired and Mm. kind of like much older. Also in the cast is popular actress Hannah Ralph who was Emil Janning's first wife who he was divorced from by the time they made this movie. Oh no. Faust's intertitles were written by Hans Kaiser, a German novelist and playwright who combined lines from the Faust book Dr. Faustus and Faust Part 1. However, Ufa hated Kaiser's work and replaced him with Nobel Prize winning playwright Gerhard Hauptmann, who wrote completely new intertitles for a fee of 40,000 Reichmarks. However, after seeing an initial cut of the film with Hauptmann's intertitles, Ufa decided they hated Hauptmann's work even more (laughs) and ultimately housed opened with hans kaiser's original intertitles the long grueling shoot was especially hard on newcomer camilla horn who was subjected to numerous abuses during filming like a snowstorm scene where Murnau used um salt being blown by fans for the snow um, as well as a scene where like she's chained up and dragged along the floor causing her ...knees to bleed. Um, However, she took it all like a champ, later saying that she adored working with Murnau. The film was shot entirely in the studio, so Murnau could precisely control all of the imagery as well as the innovative in-camera special effects throughout the film. To ensure appeal internationally... Murnau oversaw the preparation of a number of different versions of the film, such as the original German version, a French version, and an English version for the U.S. market, among others. In addition to translated intertitles and reshooting any, like, shots with text in them from, like, books, the different versions also have different pacing, alternate takes, and different content. For instance, the U.S. version is longer and it has Americanized references, such as like in the German version, there's a gag where Mephisto refuses to drink something because it'll give him heartburn. But in the U.S. version, the gag is that the drink is alcoholic and so he refuses it because prohibition is happening. Mm. Also in the U.S. version, Faust and Gretchen ascend to heaven at the end, while the German ending is more ambiguous. The French version also contains a number of unique takes, but is generally regarded to be the poorest of the major versions, with, um, like, bad takes being selected, as well as having the greatest number of on-screen filming errors, like visible uh, studio lights and, like, Gretchen stepping on her dress and things like this. Faust premiered in Berlin on October 14th, 1926, Uh, with an orchestral score by Werner R. Heinemann, uh, which references the uh, music from the opera. It had its U.S. premiere on December 5th, 1926. It was a huge financial flop in Germany.
1: No! Earning
0: only 1 million Reichsmarks at the box office. And you may recall I said the budget was 2 million. Yes. German critics savaged the film for being kitschy, for its various, like, specific adaptation choices not being right, for Eekman's performance, which was considered bland, and for Yawning's performance, which was considered (laughs) over-the-top. However, the film's reputation grew over the years, um, proving influential on filmmakers who saw it due to its powerful imagery, which would inform later films like Disney's Fantasia. Today is considered one of the classic, um, like canonical examples of German expressionist cinema, and also is considered one of Murnau's greatest accomplishments. It was also Murnau's final German film, as he accepted an invitation from Fox to come and work in Hollywood. In 1927, he directed Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, which won Best Artistic Achievement at the first Academy Awards, uh, one of two awards from that year that would be combined into the Best Picture Award moving forward. Murnau made a number of American films before dying following a car accident on March 11, 1931, a week before the premiere of his final film, Taboo. Meanwhile, Faust's financial failure, as Ufa's most expensive film to date, would be eclipsed the following year with Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which cost 5.3 million Reichmarks to produce and made 75,000 Reichmarks at the box office, leading to the bankruptcy of Ufa. Eric Palmer was removed from his position as head of production following the purchase of the studio by a right-wing media conglomerate. And Palmer fled Germany when the Nazis came to power, working variously in France, the UK, and Hollywood through the 1930s. After the war, he accepted an offer by the US military to take charge of reorganizing and denazifying the German film industry. Palmer rebuilt the industry from the ground up Along lines of his own design, basically deciding like this is how the German film industry should be, Um, including adopting like a production code style self censorship body to avoid uh, military and government censorship. Um, And he oversaw the new system until he was satisfied it could stand on its own two feet, at which point he resigned to become an independent producer again, working in Germany through the 1950s. But after requiring a leg amputation due to failing health, he retired to California, where he passed away in 1966. Today, the restored German version of Faust can be streamed on Canopy, Hoopla, and Arrow. It is available on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, in an edition which includes both the German version with two scores and the U.S. version with score by Timothy Brock, among many other special features.
1: Awesome. Um, I'm feeling excited. I am leaning towards this being horror because of that connection to Student of Prague that I noticed earlier, but, I mean, we'll have to wait and see. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So we're going to be watching the movie on Canopy. So that'll be the German version? Correct.
1: Cool. Well, folks, hopefully you can watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss Faust from 1926, directed by F.W. Murnau.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Faust from 1926, directed by F.W. Murnau. Ben, uh, how many times have you seen this movie now?
0: This would be probably time number three. Okay. Does it Um, still hold up for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, I think the last time I saw it was back in film school days. And then it's just been like a long wait to... Get get you me to, to watch, watch it.
1: it, yeah. Uh, it's not like I was avoiding this, it's mm. just so many things on the potential yes. list to watch. Yes, um, I enjoyed myself as usual. You have to, um, give yourself time to reorient your brain with silent film and just mm-hmm. like get used to having to read, I guess, is what I mean. Like getting he- used to the fact that like there's only music,
0: yeah. The thing about silent films that you have to reorient your brain to is that you have to pay attention all of the time yeah. because the story is either being told visually or there's title cards so like you just don't have the capacity to like look down at your phone and like zone out because like it's a dialogue scene i can hear what they're saying
1: yeah but i was quite impressed with this movie
0: mhm yeah mm-hmm. absolutely so despite the fact that like we gave like four ish versions of the faust story in the context setting there's still like a lot of stuff here that's just kind of new um so why don't you give us the plot summary for Murnau's faust and we can kind of break down where different things are coming from um, mm-hmm. as we go
1: Yeah, I will say you can see that the main source would be Gethers Faust, Mm -hmm. but uh, definitely a few different sources. Mm. So when we open, we see Archangel Michael, I believe.
0: Um, Yeah, he's got the sword, so that makes him Michael.
1: Yeah, Um, in the credits, it's just Archangel, so he's Garrus. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Mass effect. Archangel Michael and a demon who I think is supposed to be Mephisto, but I couldn't really tell.
0: I think it's supposed to be the devil. Uh-huh. Like it's supposed to be like capital S Satan because they're talking about like the earth being his dominion. Mm. Um, So I think that's I think it's still Emil Jannings playing the part. Yeah, that's um, what kind of
1: threw me off. But
0: I think that's supposed to be capital S Satan and Mephisto is meant to be, you know, a minor devil in Satan's employ um, despite the fact that like I see tons of plot summaries of various versions of Faust that just sort of treat them as interchangeable characters which for my money they are not but
1: yeah I wouldn't really say they are okay from the top yes. Archangel Michael and Satan are you know having a, a duel a little bit Satan's riding with his buddies and Archangel Michael is like, stop, like, stop. Why are you being jerks to earth? Hmm. And Satan's like, well, it's my dominion. Like everyone down there is greedy and corrupt. Like it's, uh, it's my dominion. And Archangel Michael is like, I disagree. Look how good Faust is. Faust, this old man, he's uh, a professor. He's teaching people how to heal. Like he's a good dude. And Satan's like, yeah, but he's also pretty greedy because he's, like, trying to turn lead into gold through alchemy. And so they make a bet that Satan will be able to destroy all that is divine in Faust as, like, representative of man. And if he's able to do this, then Earth becomes Satan's. And Michael's like, bet.
0: <laughs> what's what's weird about this, so there's, like, there's some th- Theological odd points here which i will momentarily forgive because this is a work of pop culture but like what's interesting here is that goethe's faust opens with a bet between god and mephistopheles so between like the big boss and like one of satan's underlings whereas this is a bet between michael and satan so like one of god's underlings and then like the other big guy And also the stakes are so much higher here. The stakes are really high. Because, like, in Goethe's Faust, it's like, hey, I'll make this bet with you, but, like, I'm God. So I I actually know that I'm going to win this bet, but I think it's probably going to be good for Faust to get, like, tempted a bunch just to, like, test him. So I'll make this bet with you. And Mephistopheles is, like, cool. Whereas, like, here, like, Michael's down here making bets for, like dominion over earth. Like, I feel like that's something where like you come back to heaven and God's like, Hey, what did you get up to today? And Michael's like, Oh, I, I sold out earth to Satan on a bet. And God's like, wait a minute. You need to check these things with me first. We have a chain of
1: command. Yes. Yeah, right. You <laughs> needed approval from like president of the company. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so to set up tempting Faust, Satan heads down, to faust's hometown um and causes a plague so everyone is dying even like religious leaders who are trying to be like you know prayer will save you and with these religious leaders dying faust is really the the only person in this town people can turn to um, as a man of science and knowledge um and he he despairs because he's like, I can't seem to cure this, um, or even alleviate suffering. And in this despair, he ends up burning his books, including his dope ass Bible. Mm-hmm. This is a really dope Bible edition. Um <laughs> some of the books that he's burning open up to pages that are like, Hey, looking to enhance your powers, <laughs> try summoning Satan. <laughs> So, again, in his despair, Faust does so, and um, he summons Mephisto. Again, he's doing this all in the hopes of getting knowledge to help people and help his town um, and save people's lives. But Faust is, like, not sure about this deal um, because it's his soul. So he manages to get Mephisto to agree for a one-day trial.
0: I love that Selling Your Soul <laughs> to the Devil has the option of a free trial period. I just found that, like, so funny.
1: Yeah, it's very amusing. It's, it's cool. I liked it a lot. And so Mephisto's like, yeah, like, yeah once uh, this timer ends, um, you can choose to cancel the contract. So Faust gets these powers to cure and he goes out and you know he does cure one person and then some other folks bring their sick and dying to him. Now these sick and dying are holding crucifixes and Faust can't look upon the cross. When the villagers realize this they go ah Faust he's a bad guy we gotta stone him. And so Faust manages to escape and he is just fully in despair now like if he was in despair now he's like completely lost now he's like I've sold my soul and now I can't even help them because they won't even accept my help um so he goes to basically try to commit suicide by drinking poison um and Mephisto basically tempts him with youth being like hey man like don't throw your life away because I can make you young again You you can truly live so Faust is like, cool, fine. I'll, I'll try being young. Let's let's do it. Mephisto turns Faust young. Uh, I will say he made a really good old man, like mm. platonic ideal of an old man.
0: Yeah, very much so.
1: But now he's young and uh, Mephisto sweeps Faust away from this town all the way to Italy.
0: I can show you the world. And
1: then does shining, a
0: shining, shimmering, splendid.
1: And then there's a full Prince Ali to... uh... An Italian princess, I think they Duchess, say.
0: Duchess, yeah. Yeah, like...
1: She's about to get married, and Faust shows up Prince Ali style with, like, Like, literally,
0: literally Prince Ellie style.
1: And basically sweeps her off her feet, uh, so they literally. can bone down. And just as they are about to close the curtains to bone down, uh, the timer ends. And Mephisto's like, well, Faust, you gotta be an old man if you renege on this deal. And he's like... Uh, fuck fine fine shakes mephisto's hand and then bones down
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um it's clear that it's like a few months later
0: yeah that some debauchery has occurred
1: much debauchery uh, because Faust is like moping around and Mephisto's like, well, what do you want to get up to this time, boss? You want some orgies? You want some
0: like Card jobs, games. Card Which games. I, 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 at, <laughs> I love that like, you know, the list is like, do you want a woman, a card game, an orgy? Which feels like a weird suite of options. Like these are not equal options in de- like <laughs> hey faust you have a devil under your command yes yes absolutely and what does he do for you i don't know man he he lfg's me up some card games every now and again <laughs> like
1: but ultimately faust longs to return home so they head back home just in time for easter and Faust is just like, oh, man, like, I love being back in town. No one recognizes me. Everyone's alive because the plague ended. This is great. And then falls in love at first sight with a girl named Gretchen, who is a good, pious, shy girl who heads off to church, and she's too shy to deal with this attention Faust is trying to give her. Now Mephisto's like, mm i know some real ladies who would actually want to bone down faust and faust is like no i want the girl who's saying no mm-hmm. and so mephisto's like well your wish is my command to try to sway gretchen uh, mephisto uh, conjures up an amulet and puts it in her room
0: i mean i wouldn't call it an amulet it's like a, a heart locket locket like, on, the ugliest like a little piece, piece of, of jewelry literature. yeah, yeah
1: ugliest piece of jewelry um it's like middle school level like design it's
0: but you know it's it's like the 1500s and she's like a poor you know peasant girl so to her i'm sure it's like just the dopest thing
1: yeah and it uh with like the magic powers of it allows her to be uh swayed and tempted by evil so faust is able to start courting her and by courting i mean chasing after her As she like runs away, kissing her when she's like, no. And then eventually she's like, okay, yes. And it's like, this is great. I'm sure they didn't mean it for it to be like, no means yes kind of deal. But like...
0: This is just like how all courting scenes in like silent movies tend to go. Yeah. Like this kind of like, let's run around a tree in a garden for 20 minutes And then you'll catch me and kiss me. And then I'll be like, oh, I'm in love suddenly now. Um, That's just like how love goes in movies from the 20s. I don't know what to tell you.
1: And that's how this love story goes. So Faust proposes to Gretchen. And she's like, okay, well, I need to go back home because I need to like tell my mom that I met someone. So she heads back home. Also at her house is her brother, Valentin. Um, He's Home for vacation
0: from war.
1: <laughs> Anyways, so her brother's in town and she's like, you know, pretty happy, um, but she doesn't manage to tell her mom or her brother about this uh, engagement because, again, she's like really shy about all this. At night, Mephisto encourages Faust to go into Gretchen's room and uh, bone down. <laughs> uh, Gretchen's into it and Mephisto's like, don't worry, I'll keep the brother away and he actually goes to the bar and riles the brother up saying like, yeah, Gretchen's a slut.
0: Yeah. Mephisto is a little shit. Yeah. Um, he's also like, as you might expect from a devil, he's very um, showy, flair for the dramatic.
1: Yeah. The feather in his cap is like as long as my arm.
0: Yeah. Very, a little over the top, but he's also like, he he's a little troll shit disturber And he's also, like, kind of lazy in the sense that, like, he'll make a magic carpet and show you the world shining, shimmering, splendid and turn you into Prince Ali. But when it's like, hey, can you get, like, a pious, abstinence-only girl to fall in love with me? He's like, ugh. Like, could it not? Can we do some whores maybe? Like, that's so much easier. Like, (laughs) why can't? like So...
1: Valentin, the brother, is on the way home. Mephisto also wakes up the mom. So the mom goes into Gretchen's room and dies, <laughs> just full-on heart attack from the sight of her daughter boning down. <laughs> um, Valentin comes home in time to catch her, and he's like, Gretchen, you're a slut, and I'm going to sword fight your lover. And so they're sword fighting, and Mephisto stabs the brother in the back, and the brother's like, oh, Gretchen, your lover has killed me. Give me my last rites and then to the stocks with you, you slut, you whore, you terrible person. Meanwhile,
0: again, Mephisto's like, hey, Faust, you got to get out of here. They all know about the murder in the town and they're looking for the murderer. And that's because Mephisto went around the town yelling bloody murder and waking everyone up. yes. So Mephisto uh, just wants to leave and go back to like banging princesses, I think.
1: He just prefers the climate in Italy. Right. I think. <laughs> Which, you know, it's probably nicer in Italy than it is in Germany.
0: Yeah. Devils like to hang around Rome. Ooh, spicy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so Mephisto carries Faust away, uh, and leaves Gretchen to all of these consequences of being labeled a harlot, being put on the stocks, um, her family being dead and not being able to go to the funeral because, like, we don't allow sluts in church.
0: Yeah, she's been, like, excommunicated, basically.
1: Yeah. Um. So she's dejected from society. And then we see it's winter around Christmas, and she has a kid, and she's sick and dying, and the child is dying, and... Because they're homeless now. Because they're homeless now and it's the middle of winter and no one will take mercy on a single mom and a kid despite it being Christmas and, you know, Mary, Joseph, Jesus story, blah. Right, yeah. And um, so she begins hallucinating. She thinks she sees a crib in the snow and she puts the kid in the crib. The kid dies and so people are charging her with Not just murder, but kid murder. (laughs) Baby murder. (laughs) So it's time for her to be burned at the stake. So finally, Faust hears her cries across the plains of Germany.
0: (laughs) Through the force.
1: And uh, he's like, Mephisto, we got to go. We got to go. And Mephisto's like, fine. So they manage to get to the town in time for the actual burning at the stake and as Faust is like trying to get through to Gretchen um he's like curse this youth and like why did I ever want to be young all it does is cause problems because yes it was the youthfulness that caused problems Faust and is like well you cursed youth Yes, you get to be an old man again. (laughs) Uh, So as Faust is trying to make his way through, he turns back into an old man uh, just in time as he reaches Gretchen. And he says, like, please forgive my sins. And she doesn't say anything. He manages um, as the stake is lit on fire and Gretchen begins to be engulfed. He throws himself upon the stake to be with her. Uh, Gretchen in her hallucinatory state sees Faust as young Faust and um, she is like oh you you came to rescue me and they embrace as you know they die and then we see their souls go up to heaven and um, Satan going to Archangel Michael being like hey dude earth's mine. Faust was a total shithead. Yeah, like, like, look at all he did. I have a contract here that gives him my soul. Yeah, and also, like, I won this bet, and Archangel Michael is like, nope, because most divine thing of all is love, trademark symbol, and that absolves Faust from the pact he made with you and Mephisto, and it means that Uh, He truly had something divine in him, which means you lose the bet. The end. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So visually speaking, this movie is basically perfect. Um, Can you
1: expand what you mean by that?
0: Like perfect, chiaroscuro, black and white visuals of stunning technical power with, like, perfect in-camera visual and special effects, incredible editing transitions, amazing, like, framing and blocking and, like, um like just general mise-en-scene to, like, always have your eyes looking where the director wants you looking, like, just these amazing tableaus. Like, the overall impression, you know, especially with, like, the smoke and the, like, amount of texture that um, Murnau gets into the frame and especially like some of the lighting choices where people are like backlit or lit from on high with like these visible shafts of light. It looks like a Gustave Doré engraving mm. kind of like come to life. Uh, you know, those like, um, woodcuts from like 19th century, like copies of paradise lost and stuff like that's what yeah. the movie looks like. The only visually boring section of the movie for my money uh, is like the wooing Gretchen, pastoral scenes in the garden, uh, as well as the um, comedy scenes of Mephisto courting
1: uh, Aunt Martha.
0: Yeah, leading on Aunt Martha, um, which is kind of this like comedy subplot that's intercut with those Gretchen and Faust scenes in the garden. Well, um, it's
1: it's almost like a a means of mocking faust and gretchen
0: yes um but like visually speaking that section of the movie is kind of boring um but other than that like the movie is just an absolute like visual marvel
1: i would agree i think that the effects are really amazing and if you listener have an interest in practical effects in camera effects or even just visual storytelling i think this is a movie you should check out I do like that, yes, definitely like German expressionism is all over the frame here. When we're in Italy, um, like there's shadows and stuff, but it just looks like Italy. And then in Germany, like the German town, it's like these slanted houses, like it's like straight out of um, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And it's like like the golem. Yeah. So it's like, this is just what Germany looks like, I guess. Right. Which I really enjoy the implication of. Yeah. I think that this movie is really visually cool um the story is deeply religious yes and i think it's also a pretty good adaptation of um a, and a combination of Goethe's play and the original chapbook especially because the original chapbook is like look how awful faust is don't you want to be a good christian Um, And this movie, as much as it's not necessarily like, look how terrible Faust is, it's definitely don't you want to be a good Christian?
0: Yeah, the theology in this movie is a little out of whack. And I have problems with the story. Mm -hmm. But yeah, absolutely. The visuals, especially like right out of the gate, are just like in your face, very strong. Like we start with like the four horsemen like riding through the sky with these like shafts of light going everywhere. Like, yeah, it's it's really in your face incredible um, right from the start. Um, the cast, I think, is also really great.
1: Yeah, I disagree with those contemporary critics being like, uh, What's-His-Face who played Faust was like too flat and Dude who played Mephisto was too camp. Like, I think that they played their
0: roles equally well. I mean, is Emil Jannings hamming it up? Yeah. Absolutely. But
1: he should be. He's a fucking devil who's a little shit.
0: Yeah, like, I feel like that's the whole fun of playing Mephisto is to be, like, over-the-top, mustache-twirling, theatrical villainy. Absolutely. Um, I I do like his... So, Mephisto has, like, two looks in the movie um, that are kind of, like, tied to either, like, old Faust or young Faust. And I actually really liked his original look better than the look he has for the most part in the movie his original look he has like stringy greasy hair and like a little like cap and like his face looks very dirty and he's in like these robes and somehow his eyes are always
1: glowing or glinting somehow
0: yeah like he's in the dark and his eyes will be lit up somehow and yeah i just really like it he has a really kind of like sly conniving way about him and then when he makes faust young he switches to like widow's peak all black silk outfit with like dracula collar and like big black cape and this feather in his cap and this like black rapier and like black tights kind of look
1: and it's like the way he always is sticking out his rapier yeah I feel like he had to be doing it on purpose because it was mm. consistent. And it's almost like he has a little devil's tail under right, there.
0: Right. Sure. Yeah. And he's got like, you know, the pointed eyebrows and things like that. It's a good look as well. But I, I thought the original look was more creative, to be honest. Um, But yeah, really well, it's like more him. Of a
1: subtle, I think.
0: Yeah. And yeah, I would agree with you. I think just a uh, Eekman is good as faust i do think he's better as old faust yes young faust is a bit boring because he has to be silent movie era romantic protagonist and silent movie era romantic protagonists are boring well it's
1: one note yeah whereas old man faust um he's able to go from like the despair he shows some joy he shows some like like that asking for forgiveness with Gretchen, like Mm -hmm. there's many more elements to
0: it, many more layers. Meanwhile, I do see why this movie made a star out of Camilla Horn out of nowhere because she is fantastic in it. She's a total champ doing a really great job with the material. Um, You know, her character's kind of like, again, this kind of boring silent movie stock character of like, I'm pure and virginal, which was one of like, three things that a woman was allowed to be in a movie in the silent era. But once Gretchen's like sufferings really start, like, you know, Camilla Horn's up here, like given some like Joan of Arc realness in her performance. And she's freezing in the cold and the salt, the salt. (laughs) And I really like a lot of the like little makeup touches. Like when they find her and the dead baby, like you can see these streaks of frost down her cheeks from where like the tears have like frozen i guess um yeah she does a great job
1: i completely agree um there's a thing when a character or an actor i should say um plays madness Mm. that they tend to go a bit too like manic or Mm. something or like i don't know it's almost like they go too far with showing it and you kind of lose the audience a bit and i felt like she plays gretchen uh, in the madness part as like believable down to earth and so sympathetic.
0: Yeah. And also like disturbing. Like yes. it, She does a really good job of making you realize that, yeah, Gretchen's gone totally mad in such a way that like the inner titles don't need to come up and say it. Like you just, you get it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Part of that is also with the visual storytelling as well. I, I want to hear more about, um, the issues you have with the story.
0: For sure. Cuz
1: um I thought that the pacing choices and structure were odd. I don't know if that's just um because it's not exactly how I would probably do it and maybe it's like a a time frame cuz like you know they're making this in the 20s. It's also following a lot of that structure that's from as play um which is even older. Uh, I just think it's weird that Faust disappears from his own story so we can focus on Gretchen's suffering.
0: Um, I mean, that happens in Goethe's Faust and it happens in the Faust opera. Mm -hmm. For me, the weird thing is that we don't actually get to the Gretchen story until 45 minutes into this hour and 47 minute movie. So like, it's a while before you get to that if that's what you're expecting the story to be. I think, like, personally, for my money, the biggest problem with the movie is I don't think it's particularly well-written. I think that Faust and Gretchen suffer from very weak characterizations despite good performances. Um, I find both characters to have poor motivations— um, weakly justified arcs um, that they go through changes that just sort of happen because the story needs them to now and I think the storyline suffers from some wonky theology and also quite frankly a loss of momentum mm. once Gretchen is introduced. Like it's interesting to me that the film is really enrapturing until it finally gets around to doing the story of faust as told by goethe and when it starts actually doing that at least for me the movie kind of gets boring and loses my interest and it becomes like yeah i get it
1: yeah the pastoral courtship stuff and comedic element goes on too long for sure I think I picked up on like the weak motivations and stuff cuz like Mephisto's motivation just seems to be like well he's a little shit like the otherwise there's no real reason to what he's doing which is fine cuz he's a devil but I also wish that the story was more direct in talking about society's hypocrisy because it seems like they kind of hint at it most strongly when there's the intertitle of like it's december and remember mary and jesus
0: yeah it's i mean it's clear that like gretchen's town does not treat her the way it should because nobody understands the way that she's been hard done by right it's like everyone thinks that like she's i don't know terrible on purpose
1: Yeah, but I guess, like, the thing is, is that hypocrisy gives a negative view of people as a whole Mm -hmm. and as a baseline morality. So why did Satan point to Faust and be like, this guy, right? Why didn't he point to all of these other, like, Joe blows on the street to be like, see, this is why it's my domain? I
0: think because the idea is supposed to be, and this is a thing with Job as well, like, Job starts that story extremely pious and devout yeah. the deal is supposed to be like it's a better proof if i can corrupt someone good than to like just point to people who are bad to begin with some of that comes into the wonky theology that i'm talking about like the movie um, because it has that jobian element ends up sort of touching on the idea of theodicy and does a poor job of it because it doesn't actually know what it's saying so theodicy, if you don't know what that is, that's the question of like, if God is good, why does evil exist? Mm-hmm. Um, and like the book of Job is all about that. And the answer that Job gives is shut the fuck up. What the fuck do you know? Are you God? No? Great, then shut up. That's the answer from the book of Job. Yeah. Um, the This is sort of, you know, the Christian thing of like, God works in mysterious ways. The other standard answer you get from like, old testament god is like plagues are happening because you fucked up yeah or someone in your town fucked up right it's a punishment here the devil and his minions are presented as being the source of like plague and war and famine and stuff which is a way out of the odyssey that um is very popular and is very common in pop culture and folk culture but isn't actually what Christian religion teaches like this idea that like evil comes from the devil and bad things happen because the devil does things. And it's like, that's not actually the devil's role or what he does. And that's not what the source of evil is. The devil is not like an equal. It's not like there's good God and evil God and they're fighting. Um, that's not how the religion is supposed to work, but it is how a lot of people see it as for you know, the questions of like, oh, it's it's better if I can tempt the good guy than to just point to someone who's already bad. Then you come into questions of like, what is the religious point of view of this movie in regards to individual morality? Because if we're talking about like German flavors of Christianity, you know, we're talking about Protestantism, we're talking about Lutheranism. Um, and that also brings up like Calvinism, which, you know, is the belief that
1: you're either born good or bad or rather you're going to heaven or not. And that's predetermined.
0: Yeah. It's, it's that like, God has already decided who's going to heaven. And because you are going to heaven, you are going to turn out to be a good person. Yeah. Basically, you know, I think the argument there, if you're taking it from that point of view is like, it doesn't prove anything for Satan to be like, here are all these people that are predetermined to be evil anyways. It's more impressive if he can take the good person and turn them evil.
1: Yeah, I guess um, there's still the themes from Gither's play around humanism Mm. and, you know, make good choices with your life, right? And I don't know. It it didn't resolve enough for me for, like, why everyone else kind of got away with being shitty
0: people. Mm. Um, I think the movie suffers from a couple of things that in my opinion are very common problems with silent movies of this era um but i want to talk about those a little later because i want to hit like some specific points about the story that i think are worth pulling apart a little i do wonder how much of the problem is murnau wanting to make like kind of a definitive faust Mm. um combining elements from all these multiple stories and versions and trying to make them fit together because the way that the faust legend has evolved over time Goethe's faust doesn't really have a lot to do with the faust of the chapbook at the end of the day
1: no like it's it's interesting you can trace it there but you're right that it doesn't And yeah, I I picked up that the movie is drawing from both and I thought they did a good job of trying to adapt both, but I guess it wasn't very um, cohesive.
0: Yeah, because ultimately there's like different morals. And philosophies. Yeah, being um, expressed by those stories. And so when you put them together, they start to fall apart. There's also a bunch of stuff that Murnau has like added that I think weakens the story and makes it not work anymore but like some some things i wanted to point out so the deal so the thing with um the really cool scene of faust going to the crossroads and drawing like a magic circle and summoning mephisto there that's straight out of the chat book mm-hmm. um that's straight from there but you know in previous versions of this story the deal is like faust wants knowledge And so Mephisto's like, cool, you can have whatever knowledge you want and be, you know, all knowing. And in 25 years, I get your soul, right? That's the deal. There's not like really a lot here from Marlowe's play, I think, other than like the fact that part of the story involves Faust and Mephisto kind of gallivanting around the world, getting into shenanigans. Yeah. which like the specific incident here of like the italian duchess and like faust turning into prince ali is not from any specific versions but like there's that kind of element to the earlier versions in goethe's faust we have the idea of like faust nearly committing suicide but it's because like he's at the limit of his scientific knowledge and he doesn't see any reason to continue and he relents because it's easter The plague isn't really a thing other than in Goethe's Faust, um, his father was an alchemist who cured the plague. And so like, that's cool. But like Murnau introduces this whole thing of the plague. And one of the changes he makes to Faust's character is he kind of like Jekyll and hides him into being like, Faust was like the best guy ever. And he wanted to make this deal with the devil so that he could get powers to help people and do good and be a good person and save people. Whereas like in all previous versions, it was like, I, I, it was a kind of a more selfish thing. It was like, I want more knowledge. And, and this Faust instead is like the best man who ever lived. And I think that that makes it harder to buy his character arc. Fair. But I did appreciate the difference
1: because uh, in normal time, we are in the 50s where we've seen a lot of mad scientists doing things for knowledge's sake.
0: sure, that's fair
1: and I, it's not like I would like blame Faust for being tired and repetitive because of stuff that happened like thirty years in the future from this mm. movie. but like it is just nice to have
0: a switch. My problem with it is that like Faust is this good guy who wants to help people and then he like tries once and it succeeds and tries another time and it fails and comes home in despair and is like this sucks mephisto's like right but what if you were young and able to get a hard on again and faust's like yeah okay let's give that a try and then he's like damn like having erections is great absolutely full deal and <laughs> that's like such a weird out of nowhere kind of switch like Mm -hmm. in earlier versions of the story Faust does go from being an old man to a young man but it's like part of the deal like it's a thing he asks Mephisto for either because it's like oh I'm near the end of my life and I want to be able to live longer so I can learn all this extra knowledge I'm going to learn or because it's like oh I'm near the end of my life and I want worldly physical pleasures that I never got to experience because I was too busy being a nerd make me young so I can do them whereas here it's like a thing that Mephisto offers Faust because he sucks at delivering the first thing Faust asks for and is like okay but what about this deal though and so like that's kind of weird to me, it doesn't quite work. Another thing that's interesting to me is that there's an element in Goethe where Faust is trying to figure out the meaning of the first line of the Gospel of John, uh, which is usually translated into English as um, In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, the Greek is logos. And Faust, like, struggles with figuring out what logos is supposed to mean. In English, it usually gets translated the word. And the idea is supposed to be that, like, pre-incarnation, like, pre-the Christmas story, Jesus existed. And he was this thing called the logos, which was the word of God. I bring all this up because at the end of the movie... Michael is like, Hey Satan, did you know there's one word that can totally undo all of your evil? Like a word that has power over you and that you can't fight. And Satan's like, what word would that be? And I'm like, Jesus. I thought that too. And Michael's like, love. And I'm like, Mm. No, <laughs> this is not how this works. But Especially because
1: it, everything else felt so Old Testament mm. and then love is so New Testament. But also like
0: this idea that love conquers all and that like Faust and Gretchen are redeemed because they have romantic love for each other is such a specifically like 1920s schmaltzy idea. It reminds <laughs> me of like how Metropolis decides that the way we're going to solve the labor capital problem is by like everyone shaking hands and learning to love each other. Yeah. Um, Where it's just like this overly simplistic thing that is also like very generic and Hallmark Cardi in such a way that like the movie has all these religious elements, but doesn't actually have a religious point of view. Like, what is it that redeems Faust in the end? Oh, he loved Gretchen. What redeems Gretchen in the end? Oh, she loved Faust. Like, love. And the thing is, is like, um, depending on your particular flavor of Christianity, romantic love is not like a redemptive factor.
1: No, it's supposed to be love of like Jesus in specifics because it's his love that... Uh, is supposed to like redeem you, yeah, because of his sacrifice or whatever. Yeah,
0: and like romantic love, like leads to like adultery and like bad choices, as seen here in the story of Faust. So it it really doesn't work for me.
1: But more about Jesus and the Bible, uh listen to the Apocrypals.
0: Right, excellent plug for the excellent Apocrypals podcast in Goethe's Faust. What redeems Gretchen is that Faust shows up with Mephistopheles to be like, I want to rescue you. And she's like, no.
1: Yeah, You're... she accepts her fate.
0: Yeah, your buddy is the devil. I don't want to escape if it means accepting help from the devil. And so that redeems her soul. Faust's soul, meanwhile, is redeemed after a whole bunch bunch of fucking nonsense in faust part two including like like faust part two is basically faust and mephisto's adventures through time and space where like faust becomes a time lord and gets to like fall in love with helen of troy and have a kid with helen of troy yeah but then like helen of troy dies and she goes to hades and like gretchen has gone to heaven and so faust's like left with nothing so he becomes like a tyrant like he's like what i really want to do is rule the world and then he does and it sucks and faust is like you know know i probably should have tried to actually make life better for my subjects and when he's like that then a bunch of angels show up and they're like we're taking you to heaven to teach you all of the mysteries of heaven and they take him up and that's the end um (laughs) like it's it's a little weird but like that's what's supposed to redeem faust in goethe in the opera it has the ending of like gretchen goes up to heaven because she rejected faust's help and it just ends with like faust isn't redeemed he like realizes that it's because of him that all these awful things happen there's blood on his hands and like he was a shitty guy and that's the end so the thing for me that is weird about Murnau's Faust is that he goes out of his way to make Faust kind of blameless like he's just this good guy who kind of got duped into some stuff by his bad friend Mephisto but he fell in but But, you know, even after all of his debauchery, he knew that where he needed to be was the homeland and that what he should be in love with was like a pure blonde German girl from like the folk. And then like he falls in love with her and that redeems him. Yay. And like Gretchen even is completely blameless because the movie is like, you know, that thing where Faust like poisons her mom to death so that the two of them can have sex and then like she has a kid out of wedlock and she feels so ashamed of that that she drowns the kid what if her mom just kind of like died of a heart attack from seeing her daughter boning down And what if she like had the kid and loved the kid but like it was winter and it was really cold and they died the kid died because she was homeless and she just got blamed for it like Gretchen is also like completely blameless everybody just kind of like The way it felt is... um,
1: Very Greek tragedy, almost.
0: Well, the thing that happens here is that, like, the plot ends up creaking the most and feeling the weakest and the schmaltziest when it departs from Goethe in these attempts to make Faust and Gretchen blameless little cinnamon rolls who end up needing to be dragged, like kicking and screaming into the plot of their own story Mm -hmm. by Mephisto. (laughs) Um, And what I felt was ironic is that the parts of the movie that I felt were the most engaging, like visually that like really dragged me and made me go, Oh my God, this is an amazing movie is all the stuff that's not from Goethe. Like once we start actually telling the Goethe story, the movie kind of loses me
1: well it's more down to earth Mm -hmm. and I I would guess that Murnau visually speaking not necessarily as a storyteller but as someone who wants to depict things visually felt he had the most freedom with things that would be more original because he can be like yeah Archangel Michael's gonna look super hot
0: right (laughs) and I'm gonna be super into that it, it just feels that like Goethe's Faust is this literary accomplishment. It's yeah. like talking about these deep weighty ideas that silent films, in my opinion, aren't really equipped to super well adapt. Exactly. Which is why we get this sort of schmaltzier, simpler version of the story that's all about how love conquers all. And it's also why the stuff that isn't Goethe, exactly as you said, I think Murnau had more excitement for the original stuff because like the part where they go fuck the duchess of italy or whatever is way more visually interesting to look at than like the actual like courtship of gretchen
1: yeah um i think that leads us really nicely into talking about um this being horror or not Drum roll, please I believe it is not horror. I believe it is a fantasy morality
0: tale. (laughs) Correct. Yeah, this is absolutely positively not a horror. Um, It's got a cool bit of like devil imagery in it, like a lot of cool devil imagery. But like... That's it. Fantasia and Fellowship of the Ring and Spawn are not horror movies. (laughs) Well, I
1: I was even thinking like there are contemporary examples to 1926's Faust of horror Because you could try to make the case of like, yeah, but like what Gretchen goes through is horrific. And it's like, it's very much a tragedy. But if you want to look at like someone going through horrible shit as a horror movie, David Holm is over there in Phantom Carriage. Right.
0: And meanwhile, what's happening to Gretchen is more like Passion of Joan of Arc.
1: Yeah, and I think the other reason why I can feel pretty confident in calling this not a horror is because Murnau has done horror. Nosferatu is very firmly horror, has a, a a tragic ending, but isn't necessarily a tragedy in the sense of the uh, genre.
0: Right, right. And if we want to look at like the idea of like making. A deal with the devil as a horror plot you have a student of Prague adaptation yes. the same year as yeah. this that is very clearly horror like what happens to Baldwin in student of Prague is so much more obviously a horror story than what happens to Faust which as you said like what this is is morality tale this is parable yeah, um, yeah absolutely.
1: But I do want to say thank you to David Healy for writing in. Um, this has, as we've said frequently, uh, a movie that has been on our to watch list. And uh, like I said, I do recommend people watch it if they want to see very cool visual effects done in camera.
0: Mm-hmm. So to the miscellaneous list. Yes, Faust.
1: to the miscellaneous list. You can see this list on our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking or non-ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore ScreamScene.
0: Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. Leave a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice. Tell your friends about the show. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience. If you'd like to help the show out and you feel comfortable doing so in a fiduciary manner, you can head on over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, That patronage helps go towards like our hosting fees as well as um, just like the time it takes to do the show every week. Additionally, patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content. At the $5 level, you get weekly bonus audio cut from past episodes. At the $10 level, you get all kinds of bonus writing, including my Faust and Don Draper essay from (laughs) university from like 10 years ago that's going to go up on there. That won't be embarrassing at all. Own Uh, it. Own it, dude. And so uh, if you want to check that stuff out, um, also if you want to vote, in our monthly polls on our horror-adjacent bonus episode. Patrons of all levels can do that. So head on over to patreon.com slash podcast.
1: So what are we watching next week, Ben?
0: Next week, Sarah, we are finally heading into 1959 Ooh. with William Castle's House on Haunted Hill.
1: Oh, shit. Another big episode. Mm-hmm. Well, we will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.